Let's continue in prayer this morning. God, as we open your word today, uh, we ask that you would move among us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your voice, that you would teach us and equip us for the work that you have called us to do, that you would encourage us and embolden us uh, to share the message of hope and salvation. God, we are your people and you are our God, and we ask that you would dwell with us this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Recently, we passed the 40th anniversary of what Sports Illustrated identified as the most thrilling, most exciting, greatest sports moment of the 20th century. And it made that top spot partly because of some geopolitical factors that were involved, partly because there was a global audience watching, and partly because of the sheer improbability of the outcome. Going into the Winter Olympics in 1980, the Soviet Union's hockey team had been dominant. They had won five of the last six gold medals, and in 1980, they were the strong favorites to win again. Yet, at the end of that match, the gold medal match, the Americans had pulled off a stunning and miraculous victory that no one saw coming. The politics involved made it more interesting, but 40 years later, the miracle on ice is still one of the most thrilling moments in sports history because it was such an upset. Seeing someone do something that no one thought they'd be able to do is something that captivates us. It grabs our attention. And we see that same thing taking place all over Scripture. Often, we see people doing the improbable or what we thought was the impossible because God calls people to do things that no one figured they'd be able to do. David was a shepherd and the youngest in his household when he was appointed to be Israel's king. He was untrained and he was pint-sized, so when he faced Goliath in battle, he did not inspire much confidence, yet he overcame his giant adversary and won victory for Israel. Jeremiah was a prophet called to rebuke God's people, to call them back to faithfulness to their relationship with God, and he was just a kid when he was given that responsibility. Jeremiah says in response to his calling, "'Behold, Lord, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth.'" He's concerned because he he knows that he's just a kid, but God replied to him, do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. He was just a kid, but he was being called to rebuke an entire nation during a politically turbulent season when the northern half of God's people had already fallen and the southern half was on the brink of destruction from Babylon. It would be like sending a middle schooler to the White House to advise the president during wartime. Nothing about that inspires confidence. Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who was overseeing the imprisonment and execution of believers, was called by God to play an important role in the very movement that he had been hunting. So when God told a believer named Ananias to go and visit Paul, Ananias was uncertain about that plan. He reminded God that this guy had been ravaging the church and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority to bind all who call on your name. But God replied to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. The persecutor of Christians was the absolute last person that anyone would have predicted would go on to play a role in the Christian movement, let alone such an important one. Moses 
was called by God to defy a king and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. It was a big job, and it was one that Moses did not want. Like the others I've mentioned, he was the last person that anyone would have chosen for such a mission, and he knew it. He thought he was unqualified for such responsibility, and he tried five different times to get out of it. He thought, surely there is someone better, someone more capable and more clever who should have this calling. But it was Moses whom God had called. God often does extraordinary things in unexpected ways, and over and over again in Scripture, we see that those we least expect are playing important roles in the story, accomplishing incredible things that we didn't see coming. And every single time, it reveals God's power and his glory and his mercy. That's exactly what takes place in the passage that we're looking at this morning. This is actually the second half of a section that we began last week. Jesus has stopped off on a journey uh, back from Jerusalem to Galilee. It is a path that has taken him through a region called Samaria. And as Bruce explained to us last week, the Samaritan people and the Jewish people did not get along. They really, really did not like one another. So when Jesus stops off at a well and asks a woman who is there for a drink of water, she is understandably perplexed. She had lived her whole life thinking of Jewish people as her adversaries. And now, here is one standing right in front of her, talking to her with kindness and compassion, who is wearied from a long journey, asking her for some of the water that she has drawn out of the well. He's treating her like a friend and asking him, asking her to treat him as a friend. And on top of that, it was doubly strange that he was talking to a woman at all, let alone one from Samaria. It was common knowledge that men and women were not supposed to have this type of encounter. It was even considered scandalous. Teaching on this subject from the first century made it very clear that a man shall not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what people may say. Jesus is breaking all kinds of customs by simply asking this woman for a drink of water. Yet he does. And in the course of their conversation, it is revealed that this woman has even more reason to be concerned about scandal. She's been married five times, and she's currently living with a man who she is not married to. It was, if it was scandalous for a man to ask a woman for a drink of water, imagine the gossip that would erupt from this woman's living situation. Most people think that that is why she is alone at the well in the heat of the day. She has been ostracized by the other woman in her town because of her tumultuous life. Yet Jesus, who knows all of this already, approaches her and begins a conversation. His kingdom has come. It is advancing, and he has in mind to reach this small Sumerian town. It is a plan which will involve this woman, the last person anyone would have predicted would play an important role in the saving of an entire town. Because God often does the unexpected through those we least expect. It begins here in verse 27. The disciples who have been away, probably in the town of Sychar itself, return to find Jesus talking with this woman. And John tells us that they are in shock that he is talking with a woman at all because of the cultural stigma associated with such a meeting. Yet they say nothing. 
If they asked the woman what she wanted, they too would be breaking this closely held cultural, cultural rule. And if they asked Jesus what he's up to, they might sound like they're lecturing him about what is appropriate. It's a very awkward situation for them. And it would have been, I think, a pretty uncomfortable moment uh, because all 12 of them walk up into this scene and find Jesus talking with this woman and then say nothing and just stand there awkwardly wondering what is happening. They are just surprised and silent. Jesus is already acting in this passage in ways that they did not expect. Meanwhile, in the midst of this awkwardness, the woman that Jesus has visited with leaves, apparently in a hurry, because John tells us that she left her water jar behind and went back to town. Unlike the disciples, who are silent in this opening paragraph, she tells everyone in earshot, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. While the disciples are silent, she has rushed to tell people about meeting Jesus. It is a contrast that will characterize this entire passage. The disciples, who were Jesus' closest followers, uh, ought to be the people that, or they would be the people that we would expect to be telling people about Jesus. We assume it should have been them announcing Jesus to people. And obviously, they will later go on to lead the church and fearlessly advance the gospel. They will take up Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. But in this scene, they are conspicuously silent. Because right now, God has someone else in mind to reach the town of Sychar. We know that because hearing this woman's announcement, the people of this town begin to come and see Jesus for themselves, where Jesus is waiting for them, as he will explain to his disciples. What's extraordinary here is that this woman's announcement about Jesus is received and believed at all. There are two reasons why I think that's an extraordinary thing. First, in the ancient Near East, people did not take the, women, the word of women very seriously. In fact, women were not even allowed to testify in court. Specifically, Jewish writings stipulate that any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. But the people listen to her, and they accept her invitation to come and see Jesus for themselves. But on top of that, in her announcement to them, she also reminds them of her troubled past. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Jesus has uncovered her sinful, shameful past, something that she evidently considers at the very heart of who she is as a person because she describes it as all I ever did. It's a reminder to her neighbors of the reasons why they avoid her, yet miraculously, even with this reminder ringing in their ears, they come. Because God is at work in Sychar. He is drawing people to his son. And he is willed to carry out this work through this woman, the last person that anyone would have predicted. The disciples in this scene are unaware, completely unaware of what's going on. John, who is writing this book, recording this scene, and who was a disciple himself, was here for this scene and says that they were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat something. And I think it's kind of funny how John portrays himself and the other disciples in this scene. They are utterly clueless about what's happening. While God is working out his plans to draw an entire village to himself, they are more focused on having their lunch. That's an impulse I can certainly understand. 
I, I, I feel like I resonate with that. And even though John mentioned that Jesus was wearied from his travels in verse 6 of this chapter, so much so that he asked a woman for a drink of water, now he is not weary at all. He's not tired. And apparently, he is not hungry either. He explains to his disciples in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. But this comment confuses them even more. They start to mumble amongst themselves that someone else must have brought Jesus something to eat. They are still absolutely baffled about what's happening here. So Jesus begins an explanation to them. My food, he says, is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Have you ever been so invested in something or so focused on something that you either forgot to eat or didn't even notice that you were hungry? Or so focused on something that it caused you to skip a meal because what you were doing was actually more important? I don't think Jesus has forgotten anything in this scene, but he does say that there's something more important to him than food at this moment. Doing what his father sent him to do is more important and somehow even more nourishing to Jesus than food is in this moment. And what's happening right now, while the disciples are eating their lunch, has something to do with Jesus' mission, the very thing that he was sent to accomplish and something that the disciples just don't understand yet. He explains to his friends, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. It's an agricultural metaphor that wouldn't have required any explanation for the disciples or pretty much anyone else living in the first century. But for us, most of whom are not farmers, uh, it, it may require a little bit of explanation. I'm not certain what crop Jesus is referring to here, and it really doesn't matter. The point is, the point that he's making is that first you plant the seed, and then you wait for four months, and then you harvest the crop. There's a waiting period involved. You can't rush it. It just works that way. Here in New England, where spring has finally arrived, I have flowers beginning to come up in front of my house. They peek out of the soil, they slowly get taller and taller, and eventually they'll open up to reveal their bright colors. But for right now, it's simply a matter of waiting. I go outside every day to look at them, though. I get down on my hands and knees to see if they've gotten any taller, and it seems like every day there's absolutely no change. It's just something that I have to wait for. It doesn't happen overnight. That's the sort of waiting that farmers do after they sow their crops. They wait for the harvest. But Jesus says, don't let that way of thinking shape the way you're thinking about what's happening right here. Look, he says in verse 35 and 36, I tell you, the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The harvest is ready, and it's happening right now. The reaper, the one who gathers in the harvest, is already at work. In Jesus' agricultural metaphor, this reaper has already been hired and sent into the field to begin gathering in the crop. With real crops, uh, in the real world, uh, one is hired to sow the seed, and then months later, someone else is hired to collect the crop. But Jesus saying, Jesus is saying that that gap has been closed in the town of Sychar. The sower and the reaper 
rejoice together at the bringing in of fruit for eternal life. This is what has Jesus' attention. It's the mission that he was sent to carry out and the will of the one who sent him. It is the thing that has Jesus so focused that he considers eating insignificant. The fruit of eternal life is being gathered in. And it's that language that confirms Jesus' point and what he's getting at here. The word fruit comes up in the book of John a few times, ten times, actually. And in every single case, it's part of an agricultural metaphor, just like the one that Jesus is using right now. And in every case, it refers to people and the transformation that occurs when people come to know God through Jesus Christ. For example, Jesus talks about the fruit of our relationship with him in John 15, when he says, Abide in me, and I in you, Jesus says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Knowing Christ produces life change, the fruit of our faith in our relationship with him. And what the disciples don't know, what they can't see yet, is that there is fruit growing in the Samaritan town of Sychar, and it is ready for harvest. Jesus has a sense of urgency in this passage because the harvest is already happening. This is what's more important to Jesus than food. It is the will of the one who sent him. People are being drawn to Jesus. And for the disciples who will, who will be the leaders of Jesus' church, this is an important moment for them to learn the will of the one who will send them. They need to be ready for the harvest, ready to gather in those who are being drawn near to God. And so Jesus says in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The harvest is not something that's far off that we are simply getting ready for. It is right now because the seeds of faith have already been sown already nurtured, and the fruits of eternal life are ready for harvest. But who are the others that Jesus refers to in verse 38? The others who have labored, who sowed the seeds and watered them and provided for their growth so that they would be ready to be gathered into relationship with Jesus Christ. It could be that Jesus is referring to John the Baptist, who has played an important role in this book so far. John the Baptist faithfully pointed people to Christ, proclaiming Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He told his, he told his disciples and his followers in chapter 3 that it was actually better for people to leave him to go and find Jesus. He has sown the seeds of faith in Jesus Christ among many, many people. So, is that who Jesus is referring to in this passage here in chapter 4? I don't think so. Because at this point in the story, Jesus has traveled beyond the reach of John the Baptist's influence. Those in Samaria have not heard that Jesus is the Lamb of God or wondered how he will take away the sin of the world. The people of the town of Sychar have not been looking for a Savior from among the Jewish people. And yet, among them, among these people, the fruits of eternal life are ready for harvest. People were coming to find him at the well. In fact, John tells us in verse 39 that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
people are coming to faith in Christ. They even ask him in verse 40 not to leave. And so Jesus stays with them for two more days. So based on the witness of a woman, the town had previously ostracized and rejected, who reminds them of her shameful past in her testimony about Jesus, a Samaritan town has begun to seek out a Jewish teacher with so much interest that they actually ask him to stay with them. How else are we supposed to make sense of what's happening in the passage that we're reading today? Who has sown the seeds of faith and caused them to grow and made them ready for harvest? By the end of the passage, John notes that many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These people who just two days ago thought of all Jewish people as their enemy are now looking to a Jewish man as their Savior. Nothing about this is predictable. Nothing about this is, is typical. Who else could have brought it about? God is at work to do the unexpected in Sychar. And he has been at work well before the day that we are reading about in John chapter 4. Perhaps through other travelers who stopped off in this town with stories about a commotion in Jerusalem. Perhaps by subtly reminding them of their own history and opening their eyes to their need for a Savior. God is drawing them near, and he is reminding his disciples and us that the gospel is for all people. The first Samaritan to put her faith in Jesus was a woman everyone else had written off and cast aside. Then a whole community comes to trust in Jesus as their Savior. And it's significant to note that these Samaritans are the first people who refer to Jesus as the Savior of the world before anyone in Jerusalem, before anyone in Jesus' hometown. It's this small town in Samaria. Like most Jewish people, the disciples probably wanted to spend as little time in Samaria as, as was absolutely necessary. They figured that any Jewish person with any self-respect would keep their distance and keep on moving. So it probably would have come as a surprise that Jesus welcomes them. And perhaps it would have come as an even greater surprise that they welcome Jesus. But it has always been God's plan to bring salvation to every nation, regardless of the cultural boundaries that stand in the way. From the very beginning, when God promised Abraham that through him and through his family, the families of the entire world would be blessed. To the very end, when John records that the outcome of all of salvation history is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne in worship. The disciples in John chapter 4 did not yet know the extent of God's love. They did not know all that God was up to or how far he would reach with salvation. But God often does what we least expect. Nowhere is that more visible than in the life and death of his son. He was born into an insignificant family in a small town that people had no notice of. He had no political standing, no military training, no wealth or training as a scholar. The world expected very little of him. And then, when he was arrested and executed, even those who loved and followed him expected that he was finished and that his movement would die with him and the world would look elsewhere for hope. 
Yet God often does what we least expect. And so in his death, in the death of Jesus Christ, he won victory over death itself, not just for his countrymen, but for Samaritans and for all who trust in him. This passage teaches us not only about how God is at work in the first century, but also about how he is at work in the 21st century by reminding us of Jesus' mission, its objective, and how it will be accomplished. First, this passage reminds us of the urgency to share the message of salvation with all people because God's kingdom is advancing right now. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand something about the importance of seeking out these opportunities, opportunities like the one that Jesus sought in meeting with and talking with this woman. I think we often put off sharing the gospel, thinking that there will be a right opportunity or perhaps a better one for such a conversation. Or we hope that people will come knocking on our door, wanting to know more about this Jesus person that we believe in. But what we see in this passage challenges our tendency to wait, to drag our feet when it comes to sharing Jesus with others. Jesus seeks out this woman to share hope with her, and then she turns around and rushes off and does the exact same thing for her neighbors. There's an old saying that perhaps you've heard before that evangelism, sharing our faith, is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And that's basically what this woman is doing in this passage. She goes to her, the people in her town, her neighbors, to wonder with them, could this be the Christ? She is in such a rush to go and tell them that she leaves behind her water jar, which was the very reason she had gone out that day in the first place. She doesn't understand everything or have all the answers. In fact, her testimony itself is a question. Could this be the Christ? But she rushes to share what she's found with her neighbors, whom God has already been preparing to hear this message of hope. Even though we sometimes don't feel it, or if we ignore it, there is an urgency to the mission that we have been given, that we have inherited from believers like this woman. The harvest is ready right now. God has already been at work in the lives of those around us, preparing some to receive the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ, just as he had already been at work in the people, in the hearts of the people of the town of Sychar. Perhaps in all the chaos and the hardship that has come with this global pandemic we are fighting right now, our neighbors and our friends are asking questions that they weren't before. Maybe the idea that the world needs a Savior is more top of mind right now than it has been in the lifetime of most people who are fighting this pandemic alongside us. There are people in our lives who are there because of God's sovereign design, and he's already been at work in them, already raising these questions in their minds because he has been at work already, and he has brought them into your life. That, I think, is the other thing that this passage has to say about how God is at work in the world today. God does the unexpected, and he often does it through those we least expect. He is carrying out his plan to bring the message of salvation to the nations. And he will do it through people that we think are the least qualified, the least able, and the least expected. He will do it through you and me. I think we often feel inadequate, like we're not up to the task. We think of all the things that might go wrong, 
or about the questions that we don't have answers for or the sheer awkwardness that we might face. We think that there is someone else, someone better, someone who understands more or knows more about the Bible, who is better suited to share the hope of salvation with the world. We think that pastors and missionaries and theologians and authors are the ones who are actually good at this, and so they're the ones that have been called to do it. But God delights in calling those who are the least qualified to accomplish amazing things in the advance of his kingdom. I regularly remind myself of this. There isn't a single day that goes by that I don't feel woefully inadequate for the work that I do as a pastor. I often remind my, or I often find myself wondering whether someone else ought to be here talking to you, someone better, someone who understands more, or who knows more about the Bible, someone who is wiser or just smarter in general. But Scripture reminds me that God delights to work through those who are least capable in their own strength. Paul said that God's power is made perfect in his weakness, and that is a truth lived out by every Christian who takes seriously the call to bring the gospel to our neighbors and our families. When God called Moses to confront Pharaoh, to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses tried five times to get out of it. And if I'm honest, that's a feeling that I resonate with. But God replied to each of Moses' concerns. When Moses said, who am I that I should do this? God replied, I will be with you. When Moses said that he was not eloquent and that he was slow of speech and tongue, he was worried that he didn't have the skills to do what God had called him to do. And God told him, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Over and over, to each of Moses' concerns, God replies that he is strong enough. He is the one who will bring his people out of Egypt. He is the one who will save the lives of his people. I need that reminder when I feel like I'm not qualified to do this work. And I'm convinced that every Christ follower needs that reminder. We are not qualified but our God is. We are not strong enough, but our God is. We are not clever enough, but our God is. And just as he reached into the life of one troubled woman to draw a whole town to himself, he delights to use each of us, troubled as we are, to play a part in the things that he is doing. God does the unexpected. He saves those who rebelled against him. He turns suffering and death into our salvation and our justification. He is at work in the world to bring people new life in him. And by his grace, he often does it through us, the last people that we would expect. Let's pray together. God, we are humbled this morning, having read this passage, recognizing that you are at work. You are at work to do the unexpected, that you are drawing people to yourself that we least expect, or that you are doing it through those we least expect. Um, God, we ask that you would allow the truth of this passage um, to resonate in our hearts, that we would be reminded that you have called us into service, called us to be at work to advance the kingdom. But even when we feel intimidated, or unqualified for that work. God, we ask that you would remind us, that you would encourage us by reminding us that you are able and that it is in your strength that you will accomplish all that you have in mind to do. 
God, we are thankful for your Son, in whose name we have new life, and whose name we proclaim to our neighbors and friends in your strength. Amen.